Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Chris Ripley to the show. A true visionary, Chris's passion is driven by an obsession with problem solving and a deep-seated frustration with the everyday waste and inefficiency that characterizes modern business and consumer lifestyles. Having spent his career listening to magical solutions that might solve problems later, you could see that Chris is a visionary with no time for vision, instead choosing to focus his life and his career on the unlimited number of problems that can be solved right now. His passion is undergirded by decades of experience manufacturing paint, building technology, and running data analytics firms. It is this unique knowledge set, ranging from the chemical to the regulatory to the technical, that allows Chris to see opportunities and imagine solutions invisible to many in the world of waste and recycling. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. It's weird, weird times we're in, uh, but I'm looking out my windows at an empty downtown Austin. Um, I'm just happy to be healthy. And how's the weather in Austin? Well, I mean, it's perfect. Uh, that's why all of California is moving here, uh, probably even faster as we speak. <laughs> For those of you listening, it's March 27th, and we're right in the middle, at least I hope we're in the middle, of the coronavirus pandemic. So let's see where it goes from here. Chris, i like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Interesting and also something that we wouldn't get sanctioned for on the airwaves. All right. Um, well, uh, I'm a real weird guy. Uh, so first of all, um, I went to a school where everyone uh, who graduated was either going to be a coach, uh, a consultant at a McKinsey level consulting organization or a uh, banker at a Goldman level bank. And uh, I didn't do any of those things. I went uh, pretty much directly into startup. Uh, I'm 41 years old. Um, this is my 14th startup. Um, oh I had a number of venture backed startups uh, and my startups are uh, that, that's not just the weirdest part. The weirdest part is what my startups have done. Um, so I have a number of patents in the old timiest type of manufacturing. I'm literally big blades stirring big pots full of polymers and chemicals uh, in the adhesives and paint world. And then I have patents in big data architecture. Uh, so I'm this weird mix of physical scientist a la 1700s and uh, computational data scientists, uh, although I'm starting to realize how, how little I actually know, uh, but uh, compared to how fast we're moving in AI and, and machine learning. But uh, bringing those two things together is a little strange. Well, a couple of questions bounce out of that. First of all, I think... Um... We kind of realize as we get older how much we really don't know. But the questions are, what school did you go to? I went to the and... number one school in the world, which is Williams College, in case anybody out there is looking to apply to a school. It's the number one school. Well, uh, I, have three, I have three young kids. So I'm always kind of taking notes. I, uh, I loved Williams so much. Uh, I was really lucky. Uh, I got into um, most of the schools I applied to. Uh, it was... Uh, mostly having to do with the fact that I was pretty good at football, uh, not any other reason. 
Um, and I chose Williams. I really didn't know what I was choosing when I went there and it was truly life-changing and it's a part of my life almost every day, even at 41 years old. And the second question is, so you have your feet both in the 1700s and in the present, if not in the future, what's the curiosity that drives you? Just all the stuff that we know, but we're not doing. Um, so just, all right. Here, here's just this one that just bothers me constantly. So we're into, we're really into computers these days. Computers are really cool. Um, I'm into computers. Uh, we're really into new technology and, and that's cool. But the world around us is bound by physics and um, yet physics and chemistry aren't cool right now. And so it's a real disjointed problem because if we think computers are going to continue to evolve and become even more a part of our daily life um, transparently and, and, and in our face. And we know that stuff, the environment that we live in is dictated by physics, then why aren't we dealing with physics and chemistry more? Why aren't we resolving that on a computational level? Um, that's what drives me because I think it's just this huge opportunity to drive massive efficiency. And what I'm most excited about is that efficiency really drives the sustainability of what we're doing. And so if you think about what efficiency means, it's this idea of I can do more with less. That's a very just simplistic, but pretty spot on way to define efficiency. And so if we're using a lot of stuff to make X, and we can use half as much stuff to make X that is defined as efficient. And whether stuff be time or where I'm most concerned about is raw materials. And it turns me into an environmentalist because, well, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do better with what we have. Um, but I didn't get here because of environmentalism. I got here because of just the screaming inefficiency of not measuring the physicality of products and understanding what power that is. So I'm just, I'm so enthralled with that and I'm psyched to make that my life's work. So speaking of life's work, can you share a little bit about your current endeavor right now? Sure. So Smarter Sorting is making the product genome. Uh, the product genome is kind of like what it sounds. It's a, it's a bunch of code that describes something like a Coke or a Clorox bottle or an iPhone 11 Pro. Um, and if you think about how a Coke can is described, it's, you know, all sorts of marketing words and secret formula and, you know, Coke goes back a long ways and Super Bowl ads and the polar bear. And that's what Coke is to, to people, to people that buy it. And I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't bother me. But what about the people that make it? What about the people that recycle it? What about the people that sell it? What about the people that have to deal with it? You know, with Coca-Cola, that's not really as big a concern as maybe Clorox. Like, how does Clorox get made? How does it safely get handled? What happens if you get some in your kid's eye? Smarter Sorting uses the product genome to compare products on what they actually are. So we know the exact amount of sodium hypochlorite that's in Clorox. We know the exact volumes of other chemicals that are in that bottle. And we know how they're supposed to be handled, shipped, disposed of, recycled, put back into the circular economy. And so that's what Smarter Sorting does. We work with 
large retailers, the largest retailers on the planet, uh, name the three largest retailers on the planet, we probably work with one or more of them. Um, and we help them understand what to do when they want to buy a product. Let's say that, uh, let's say I'm uh, this large grocery store chain. Uh, we don't work with Target, so I'll use Target as the example, uh, but we don't work with them. So let's say that Target wants to go and buy some Clorox. Uh, it's a new type of Clorox, they wanna put it on their shelves. Target needs to know uh, what the EPA designation for that product is, because that has to do with how they're gonna ship it. They need to know um, if it's flammable, because that's how they're gonna store it. They need to know what type of health concerns there are, because that actually decides if they wanna sell it, but also how their store associates handle it. Um, we give Target a very easy way and extremely fast. Like the, the current system is about five weeks. That's how long it took them prior to Smarter Sorting. With Smarter Sorting, it takes them about four minutes. It's completely transparent. They get to get that product on the shelf faster and they get to handle it in a safer, more compliant way, um, which allows them to save a lot of money. So that's what Smarter Sorting does, mostly with retailers. Uh, we started actually with municipalities, but we work with retailers now. So you took the Clorox example. How do you get the proprietary information from the manufacturers in order to sequence, you know, your words, almost like a DNA? So it, it's a really good question. And so, again, it comes down to, to the physics of it. So when you test a product and you test its, its components, you end up having to make either a technical data sheet or a safety data sheet for products of a regulated nature. So that's your everything basically under the sink or in the garage or anything that has a battery in it. You know, lithium ion batteries are a pretty big hot button these days. And so we take those pieces of paper and the surrounding documentation, we parse them, we put them through what's called our automated, automated classification engine. And then that automated classification engine pushes out all of the classifications we need for that product. We then parse every single regulation in all 50 states uh, in Canada. And then we push those parsed values through the regulations that then allows us to come out with a unified view of that product. And we're able to compare it apples to apples to other products. So it really comes down to big machine learning play where we are making giant data lake with everything that the manufacturers ever said and released about that product. And then we put that into our system and we come out with those numbers. Now, you mentioned helping the retailers when it comes to, I'm guessing here, truncating the supply chain. How does it help post from a disposal perspective? Uh, this, this one's my, this is how I got into it, because this is what really pissed me off. I was at Austin Resource Recovery, and that's a, um, a household hazardous waste facility, amongst other things, in Austin. And I saw them placing in the incineration bin brand new high quality solvents. And when I looked at that, I was I was dumbfounded. Like, why would we ever pay someone to incinerate something that costs $50 a gallon and additionally is in super high demand? That seems really crazy. And what I realized is that to someone who handles solvents often, it's crazy. But to a person that doesn't have a chemistry background and is looking at the maximum variety of labeling out there uh, that that person can't possibly 
understand how all of these products fit together. So here's an example. Look, I want you in your mind's eye to think about walking down the grocery store aisle. And the aisle I want you to walk down is the cleaning aisle. So it's got your Tide, it's got your hand soap, it's got your bleach, it's got your floor cleaner, it's got Lysol, it's all those types of products. How, uh, how many different actual base formulations are there in that aisle if there are 300 different products? So the form of answer rise I'd like you to try is 90% of the products in that aisle are X base formulations. What do you think it X could be? I'm going to guess there's a lot of similarities between them all. So I'm going to guess, I don't know, 30, 40%. So there's four or five base formulations that make up 90% of that aisle. So said differently numerically, there are 270 products there that share four base formulations. So now said even differently is we could take 270 of those 300 products and put them essentially in four separate bins. We could mix them together, their formulations would be missable, and we'd end up with a product that had value at the end. But how would someone know that? Especially when you turn it over and from a marketing perspective, the marketer has chosen other ways to describe the same chemical. So something like acetone, which is less prevalent in a grocery store, but very prevalent in a Home Depot, there's a lot of ways to describe acetone. There's a lot of ways to describe petroleum distillates. So just as a real simple one, you could describe it as acetone. You could describe it as its entire organic chemistry name. You could describe it as its chemical notation, or you could describe it by some really old timey name like oil of ampure. Uh, I think that's acetone, but, but seriously, and all of those things are correct. So now you're my mom and my mom's going down there and she looks at it and she's like, oh, well, I hate acetone. I saw that on the news and acetone's bad. And I'm not saying acetone's bad, but look, you could just imagine maybe my mom thinks it's bad. And now she turns this around and she goes, oh, well, this doesn't have acetone in it. It's only methyl ethyl bad stuff. Oh, okay. Well, methyl ethyl bad stuff's not as bad as acetone, so I'll buy it. And that's the way, that's what marketers are sort of playing on uh, is, is, you know, whatever the, the new idea uh, of what's bad, they're going to call their product out as something different. And so now when that product ends up at the end of its life and there are five, 10, 200 de uh, descriptions of essentially the same thing, what's a person to do? And, and that's just the cleaning aisle. I mean, what happens when, like I mentioned, petroleum distillates or paint, um, you know, there's only like three real formulations of latex paint, which makes up about 75% of the paint market in the U.S. And so there's only three or four formulations. We could do a real good job recycling it, but we have to know which one was which. That's what the product genome helps with. So a couple of things. First of all, since we we're recording right here in the middle of March, when I was imagining walking down the aisles right now, they're quite empty. So um, that's the first thing. Second is that you really opened my eyes there for a moment. So if I understood you correctly, you said that marketers change the names of the product in the actual ingredients? Yeah. So let's give you a, a real live example. And this one's really funny. I was in um, Washington State uh, a few, few months ago. And I was in the airport 
and I look at what was called vegan beef jerky. Now, Raj, you see vegan beef jerky and we know about Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger and things that people are doing with jackfruit, like my friend Annie at the jackfruit company. And you look at that stuff and you're like, okay, well, this must be a meat alternative, right? You can imagine that, Raj, that, that that's what they're trying to say. So that's not what they were saying. They weren't saying this is a meat alternative. You had to turn it over and read, and it was that the cows were only eating a grass diet. No. Yes. <laughs> so, so, but, but you could imagine a person on the run through an airport <laughs> because meat alternatives are on, on our mind every day, right? Because we get to, we're, we're being marketed to constantly. And now we go ahead and we pick that off the shelf really quickly. We're running to the, we're running to the airplane. You know, we're really hungry. We open it. We sit down, we don't read the whole ingredients and, oh, wow, this, this vegan beef jerky is almost as good as the real thing. You finish it and then you, know, you put it, put, put the trash in the seat back and you don't think about it uh, a moment, but turns out, and here's one, here's one that I, I like. So I, first of all, this is a product that I really love. So this is what I'm about to say isn't to decry the product. It's just to call out the marketing. So Murphy's oil soap. Um, I grew up in a family with a lot of horses, so cleaning saddles and bridles um, was a thing we did often um, as a child labor stuff. And Murphy's oil soaps an incredible product to solve that problem. So you look at the uh, the the label of Murphy's oil soap, and it says derived from ninety eight percent natural ingredients. Well, that sounds pretty good. 98% natural. And then you look at the product genome and the state of Washington considers it a toxic. You could imagine my mom looking at that product and thinking that it was pure or good or wholesome. And it's a toxic, at least according to the state of Washington. So that's kind of a weird way to say this is toxic by putting this big green label on it, talking about how natural the product is. Amazing. So what's the... Uh toxic or is it the two percent that's in there it's it's the two percent but i want you to consider this concept of natural you know what else is natural radium uranium is natural i mean there's plenty of natural lead is natural there's plenty of natural things that are pretty toxic and can kill you arsenic totally natural absolutely uh, occurring in the natural environment not a man-made thing we're not talking about californium which is only you know made in the Haldron collider it, it's it's but but these marketing words cause my mom to make mistakes they cause um, buyers at large retailers to make mistakes and let's just talk about the trickle-down effect so uh, I think uh, a lot of your listeners have followed uh, some stuff on the in the Wall Street Journal about some crazy number, like 66% of the stock market volume is in ETF, mutual fund type vehicles. Um, and you look at how the the funds are constructed and you know, look at like a giant company like Costco, look at who owns largest shares of shirt proportions of Costco. And you look at place, uh, organizations like the New Jersey Teachers Pension Fund. And the New Jersey Teachers Pension Fund, and I'm not sure if this is actually true for New Jersey. It might be only true for New York and another one, but just go with me here. This Teachers Pension Fund, they make the decision based on the environmental outcome that Costco creates. 
So if Costco's buyer buys this product because they think it's natural and good, because, you know, they're not probably physicists or chemists, and then they put it on the shelf, and then some portion of that product goes unsold or damaged, and then it's picked up by Stericycle, and Stericycle then reports that they disposed of a toxic substance, then that goes against their EPA generator status, which comes back in the sustainability report to the teachers union. And the teachers union looks at Costco and Kroger and they say, you know what? Kroger doesn't have as much bad stuff. That's probably not true. It's probably just because they have a better reporting uh, or, or a more uh, nuanced reporting method. And so they decide to invest in Kroger rather than Costco. So um, sustainability is not Yes, it's imperative for the environment, but sustainability is also imperative because it's what's driving some share value right now. Maybe not today uh, where we stand right now talking on this podcast where we have 10% swings in the Dow, largest swings we've had in 90 years. But in every other bull or bear market, the idea that more people want your stock is pretty important. And those giant unions, those pension funds that have $25 billion in them, it's an important customer to keep happy. So it's just, it, you know, sustainability is more than just, I want the world to be healthier. It's also a bottom line initiative that most retailers are paying attention to now. So you've given us quite a lesson already. And, you know, the crux of this conversation is the why behind what you do what drives you what's been driving you to you know pick this particular project to work on when i saw that so fisher scientific makes um extremely high quality chemicals and i actually think they probably label them they probably don't actually make some of the chemicals i'm talking about but when i saw some of those chemicals in the waste bin that were going to be carted from austin uh, and taken to an incinerator in Utah to be lit on fire, a, a cement kiln. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, the city of Austin is paying an incredible amount of money. So something like 11 bucks to burn that gallon of acetone. The environment's paying an incredible toll because somebody's got to drive that acetone from Austin to Utah. Utah's an incredible toll because they have to then burn uh, a less than optimal fuel, which then has externalities in it. Who wins here? And when I recognized that this was pervasive across every large organization in America, and furthermore, that the EPA was getting stricter and stricter on how to handle it, I realized that this wasn't a problem that was gonna be solved in any other way except computationally because there's too many products out there. We estimate that the consumer product count is around 140 million. Um, that's a statistical analysis based on the variance we see in the stream. And so at 140 million, there aren't any 50 people in the world that could be put together that could possibly come up with how to solve this problem. This has to be done computationally. So then when we started doing it computationally, that's when the, and, and by the way, Raj, that was a small, that was the small problem. The, 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 what got me into it was the small problem. Then I realized that to do it computationally, we had to create something like the product genome. And that's the big idea. That's the thing that could change, frankly, everyone's life that's listening to this podcast. 
the idea that your things around you can be related to by your computer, can be measured, can be understood, that's a big deal. And that's, uh, and I say my life's work, and I just want to point it out. I mean, I told you that I've had 14 startups prior to this, and I've now committed that the rest of my life is going to be in this material space where we're going to be quantifying materials for the purposes of computational analysis, and that we're putting it to work first and being able to help large organizations be more sustainable and more efficient. So that's the why. You mentioned 140 million consumer products globally, US. Where does that number come from? It would be globally. Um, and um, this is a, a, a statistical analysis of taking the variance of the input stream and looking at what those variants might predict as a total population size. Okay. And and so so using a Monte Carlo analysis where we just simply said, okay, what is the what is the variance of the incoming set, the number of observations? What's that actually tell us about what the potential population could be? And why it could be so large and why that's confoundingly large is that it for physics, so think about something like um all right, let's think about your Windex. So Windex is stuff that you clean a glass with. So if you have, let's just pretend that there's a one liter Windex size that's been available since 1960. How many different products are that one liter Windex between 1960 and today? And you're like, well, I don't understand, Chris. You just said it's one product. It's the one liter size and it's Windex. So it's the same product. But that's not true. That's the marketing part of it. That formulation has changed several times. So that one product, that product in your mind, that as a human has one spot in your head, you're like, well, it's Windex. And my grandmother used Windex and my mother used Windex and I use Windex. That's a product. No, it's several products. That product has fundamentally changed its formulation many, many times. And so when they say the new and improved blank product, that means the formulation changed. That means how it's regulated changed. That means how the poison control people have to deal with it changed. That means how it's how we sustainably handle it changes. So the reason the number is so high is because most products that have been in market for even more than a couple of years have gone through significant formulation changes. So from the iterations I'm hearing. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty amazing. You know, another question that came up when you were asking me to do that uh, walking through the aisle exercise, we had a gentleman on from a company called Truman's and they do cleaning products, but they send you the formula essentially and you add the water because he was telling me the majority of the biggest ingredient in all of these products is water essentially. So yes. is there a way that what you're doing can help save some of that too? Yeah. That is a way. Let, let's use a more nuanced approach than water, because I think what, first of all, what they're doing is awesome. Love that concept. By the way, it is it's a two-edged sword because let's think about something like bleach. The Clorox that you purchase uh, mm -hmm. at at the store is about five percent sodium hypochlorite, five percent bleach. The rest of it's water, and it's not a hundred. It's like ninety-four percent water, and there's one percent 
things like surfactants. So that 94% water. So you say, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to reduce that water by half. So it's going to end up being 10% sodium hypochlorate, 1% or 2% surfactants, and uh, the rest will be water. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, wait, I can even reduce that more. Well, at some point, that sodium hypochlorate becomes so potent that it's now an acute hazard for anyone that touches it. So what we work on, um, and so don't get me wrong, the, the whole idea of reducing water and, and shipping less water around is a great idea. We're in complete support of it. But what you'd use the genome for is to figure out what numbers you could pick that would get you just below that acute toxicity to humans. So it would be a problem, even though environmentally it makes sense, to ship something that was so toxic that before you watered it down, could make somebody that opens the bottle pass out. And then if they spilled it on the ground, would burn a hole in their tile. And people are like, oh, that sounds crazy. That, that, that's, that's not the type of products that we have. Really? If you take the water out of liquid plumber, you get that. If you take the water out of Clorox bleach, you get that. If you take the water out of any ammonia product, you get that. And so what we do is we help any company that wants to understand what ingredient levels they they can hit without hitting acute toxicity or even toxicity in general levels or marine pollutant levels or dermal toxicity levels you can literally move a slider on our on our ui that says oh well currently my product has 5.2 percent sodium hypochlorate what happens if i just move this slider here to 3.5 percent sodium hypochlorate oh my gosh turns out it gets rid of about two-thirds of the regulations. Oh my gosh, turns out that it's no longer a dermal toxic. Oh my gosh, turns out that it's now safe to handle in almost every situation. So those were things that chemists weren't really thinking about or aren't thinking about enough, and they need to be thinking about it more. But how do you take someone who's a formulation chemist and make them knowledgeable about the entire schema of regulations across all 50 states. California has 93 different regulation districts. I don't think chemists got into chemistry to be involved with that, interested in that. I think it's something they have to be aware of, smarter sorting can help. And so that smart chemistry, smart formulation piece is another thing that our platform directly impacts. I love that idea and the visual of, you know, the UI of using a slider to come up with those formulas is, it's brilliant. I think, you know, creating simplicity in that is uh, not only effective, but like you said in the beginning, efficient. That's what it's about. It's about a widget that makes it efficient to make a giant change for all of us. And one other question that came up in, in my mind, you know, when you were mentioning the number of uh, products out there, how does the EPA keep abreast of all the different products and the changes? It's a great question. And really the way that they do it is by measuring the output of, of companies. So they measure it by the output, by the waste that's produced by Clorox company. They do it by the waste that's produced by Costco or Walmart or Walgreens. And the waste is actually one of the biggest components of how they measure it. When it, before it becomes waste, the, comp, the organization that has more to do with it is OSHA. So OSHA measures it based on what's called a safety data sheet. 
And that safety data sheet has a section in it about how a human is to interact with the product. And that's how OSHA deals with it. And the two coming together, which they don't really work together extremely well, but OSHA handles the product while it's being in, used and stored around humans. And then the EPA deals with it at the end of its life. You know, as you were saying that, I just feel like you kind of mentioned the market opportunity earlier, but I see a huge white space that's just waiting for disruption with you know a company like yours. It is um, not good that Smarter Sorting is the only company doing this. We need hundreds of companies like Smarter Sorting focusing on narrow verticals across the world and making these types of changes. So what Smarter Sorting aims to be in five, 10 years is a platform that enables other companies to come in, use the underlying product genome data to do things like green chemistry or smarter transportation, or here's one, this is a really kind of, this one's a tough one to talk about for me um, just because it's so dumb. Um, but you, in order to sell products that are going to touch humans, many states like California require you to rub them on a rabbit and see how much you can rub on a rabbit until the rabbit gets a very bad rash or dies. That's not very good. That hurts. Uh, they require you to pour uh, the, a product or place the product in a tank full of guppies until you've killed the guppies. All right, that's kind of dumb. Um, same thing with rats. The rats, they require you to inject the product until the rats die. And those are all tests that are required. Well, here's the thing about physics and chemistry, which is kind of cool. And this is, again, just this whole idea of, it's great that everybody's into computers, but let's let's use some let's use chemistry. Uh, let's use some physics. We can actually we have incredibly accurate predictive models on the toxicity of products in those animal populations that meet the needs of those tests. And so we've met with the state of Washington and we've shown them that they don't have to kill animals anymore. They can just simply use the product genome to make the predictive analysis of dermal toxicity. Well, that's a big deal because I don't know that there's many people out there that are like, you know, the only way, Raj, I'm going to buy this product is if I know how many rabbits it killed. My mom certainly doesn't say that. I don't know, you know if you know anybody that's really into that. I don't. I know that the state of Washington isn't anti-rabbit, um, but that was the method to do this, the old-timey method 25 years ago. But all we have to recognize is that physics and chemistry are math-based sciences. Computers handle math. We can use that math to make predictions that are already accepted by our regulatory agencies. We just have to do that. And so as an example, Smarter Sorting is helping in this right now, but we need someone to use our data to solve that problem and just make it so that we don't have to randomly kill rabbits for fun. And this is, again, this is not because... I am wearing a PETA shirt. It's just because why are we killing rabbits if we don't need to? Like, what's the deal? It just goes back to this whole idea of waste and efficiency. Yeah, I so agree with that. You know, I'm often on the fence, you know, about animal testing. I've understood in the past why it needs to happen. Um, I went vegetarian myself a few years back, 2017, and it was more for health reasons than anything else, but 
I've definitely become more conscientious about it. And animal testing is definitely one of those things that I, I was kind of hoping that maybe with quantum computing, we could accelerate the way we do testing and not necessarily need to be testing on animals. My understanding is that with quantum quantum computing, we can run, you know, an exponential amount of scenarios in a short amount of time. And perhaps that would eliminate some of that animal testing. So where quantum's going to help is things like predicting formulations affect like a drug formulation with a super complex molecule. When you look at where consumer products are today, especially consumer chemical products, there aren't very many complex molecules. I know that sounds crazy. You're like, well, wait a second. I'm, my, my washing machine works so much better now with this new formulation of Tide. It's not really, they're, they're, it's not like we're doing proteomics to make a Tide pod. Um, so we actually, and Smart Sorting can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt with regulators who have signed off on it, that our system obliviates the need to do that animal testing for cleaning products, as an example, for home improvement products, as an example. And so, yeah, when quantum gets here, it's going to solve another problem that we at Smart Sorting haven't even scratched the surface of yet. But today, we could stop the animal testing of the products just using the product genome that Smarter Sorting already has to the extent that we've already perfected it. So I'm not talking about something that Yes, people should be really excited about smarter sorting because in two years, we'll be able to do blank. I'm saying what we can do today. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, Chris, this has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that we've not explored that you'd like to talk about or share before we go? I'd like to, I'd like to, um, I'd like to take a second and just talk a little bit about the quantum computing piece. Um, and Raj, you didn't say any of these things, but I'm going to hold you accountable for a point of view that you may not have. And then we're going to explore it. So there are some people that are extremely excited about the, the future. I, I'm one of those people. So we meet with customers all the time who have these visions of what 10 years from now might be. Well, Chris, you know, this is great. But, you know, in 10 years from now, we're going to have uh, all electric vehicles that are powered by wind turbines that use zero fossil fuels that are going to massively reduce our global impact. And, you know, I see how this solves our problem today. But, man, you know, we're just not going to have these problems in 10, 15, 20 years. And I love that idea. I want a flying car that sequesters carbon and makes graphene packaging. I want that. So Raj, sign me up for that car. But today, this second, right now, we can be doing things that make us money, that save the environment, that make it easier for our workers to do their jobs, that make the products less costly for my mom and your mom. So when we talk about the future, it's not that I don't, I'm not interested in the future. Man, I'm super interested in the future. I just want now to be the thing because now we have the opportunity to do so many amazing things for our shareholders, for our customers, for the environment that have to do with sustainability and efficiency. And that's where our brain's got to be. Well, while we're on that, if there's some words of advice or wisdom you can share with the audience, what would it be? When you are looking for a solution to a given problem, recognize that because technology has moved so quickly, 
you are going to need to look for smaller companies that are doing very, very cool things. And this is not the way that business was 25 years ago. 25 years ago, when you had a problem and you were a multi-billion dollar organization, you were only gonna entrust that problem to a company that had decades of experience. Technology has passed by those companies with decades of experience. So you look at IBM. IBM's bought, purchased all of its innovation. IBM isn't an innovative company any longer, and they purchased their innovation because the innovative companies are those companies that have been doing something completely different under a new set of models that allow massive movement forward. And you don't have to take my word for this. Just look at the stock market. Pick our largest Dow components and look at where they were 35 years ago. And you'll find that they were either nowhere or non-existent. And so you recognize, you're like, well, wait a second. This is proving itself out, not just because some crazy entrepreneur in Austin is claiming it, but we're certain that these innovations are moving faster and faster. So open your mind up to the idea that the solution is much easier than you thought it was, and it can be handled much more quickly by a more nimble company. So I really appreciate that. And I've been on the consulting side myself and on the startup side. And the, you know, there's the old adage, you brought up IBM, no one gets fired for hiring IBM. How do we, how do we help some of these people perhaps in procurement or people that are looking to engage with smaller companies overcome that hurdle of, you know what, we're not going to hire IBM. I'm going to perhaps, you know, put my job on the line here and look to a smaller company. I, I think it's a great question. Um, and what we see with our customers, because we're certainly a smaller company and we're working with the behemoths. Uh, I think you, I think it comes down to pick a project that is an easy win that you believe as the, as the uh, buyer, let's say you're at a retailer, that's an easy win for you. So you've met Smarter Sorting and Smarter Sorting's told you about this whole big picture of amazing complexity and awesomeness that they should have. Start off with something that's an easily, easy, easy bite size. That's a 30 day project. You don't have to put your neck out on the line too much. Heck, the startup might even do it for free. You get that 30 day project in, you, you get the win, you register the score, you go to your, your higher ups and you say, hey, look at what we've done. This didn't even cost us anything, but this happened in a month and this would have taken two years if we had done it the old way. We should give these folks a shot at a larger project that's more impactful to the business and I'm behind it. So, so just get that first win in and then you have solid ground to launch from. That's how it works with our largest customers. And I think that that could work for startups and large industries alike. Chris, I think that's a great place to leave off. And again, I really appreciate your time today. And I so agree with you. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production. And if you want to show your support and help us grow, please share with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle.